0: If you guys would look with me at the front of the little paper things they gave you when we walked in, we're going to be reading out of John 21 today, starting in John 21, verse nine. When they got out on land, they they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish. 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon son of John, Do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said this to him the third time. Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me.
1: So anyway, we've been walking our way through the Gospel of John, looking at these intense conversations Jesus has with people. Tonight, we get to the very end, almost the the last conversation in the whole book of the Gospel of John, and it's a conversation between Jesus and one of his disciples, Peter. And I think it's important for us to look at as we finish. And to set that up, I wanted to tell you a story that I heard earlier this summer. This is a true story about a guy named Jeff. Don't know who Jeff is, don't know where it took place took place in the year 1984 like the book and Jeff was it dri- was a high school student driving to school one early morning and you know sometimes when the sun is coming up it's it's glary it's bright you can't see you put the little visor down you block you still try you can't see and he was blinded for enough time where he hit somebody hit somebody walking on their way to that school, one of his fellow classmates who was walking to school, he hit this girl, she flew over his hood, he slammed his, you know, brakes on, gets out of his car, runs around to the back of the car, and there she is, unconscious on the ground, and he just turns white, because he just thinks, oh, I just killed this girl. Thankfully, she's still breathing, you know, they call the paramedics, they rush her to the, you know, the ER, and uh, She survives. And after some time of recovery, she, you know, makes her way back to school, of course. But Jeff is so overwhelmed with the guilt of what he has done that he, like, can't make eye contact with her. So anytime they'd be walking in the hallway, he would just kind of duck and look the other way, and it was kind of awkward in high school for the rest of their time. They eventually graduate, go to different schools, live the rest of their lives, never see each other again. 20 years after this incident, so I guess this is 2004, Jeff checks his email and has, a, and has a message waiting in his inbox from Tammy, and he's just kind of expecting the worst. He hasn't talked to her in 20 years. What's this going to be? And here's what, here's what the email says. It says this. Dear Jeff, you may have been the first person to hit me with your car, but you weren't the last and she goes on to explain that she's become like this fairly successful stunt woman in Hollywood. Like anytime that when they're making a movie and they need somebody to get hit by a car, they bring in Tammy. And so, and so here's what she says. She says, when people ask me how I got so good with car hits, I explain how a guy hit me my freshman year walking to school. Now, that email healed Something deep in Jeff, because for so long he had carried around this guilt of this thing that he so regretted, this mistake, this failure of his, and then he gets this news to discover, oh my goodness, something actually like good came out of this situation. Something beautiful came out of this scenario that I thought could never be redeemed. And I begin that way because I don't. If you're anything like me, when you think about. If God is at work in my life, the one area in my life where I feel pretty confident that He's He can't do anything with, it's with my failures. It's with the things that I've the things that I've done that I regret. There's like he can't fix that. He can't do anything with that. And if you look back over the whole, I mean if you look back over this semester, like a whole semester of, I don't know what it ever is for you, busted relationships or just decisions that you made that you wish that you hadn't, or Uh, just the wreckage of your life recently. If you're anything like me, you look at those situations and you think, man, there's no way God can take the shame of who I am and what I have done and actually make something beautiful out of it. And thankfully, this story proves us all wrong. This is an amazing story because it it shows us really two things that I want to show you tonight. It shows us how Jesus responds to our failures and then what Jesus does with our failures. So those are just two things I want to look at with you tonight, just two. How Jesus responds to our failures and what Jesus does with them. So let's look at the story and figure out how does Jesus respond to our particular failures. And to get into this text, we need to rewind the story a little bit to understand how Peter failed, Peter, the guy in the story, is one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his closest disciples. And about a week or so prior to this story, it's the night before Jesus is crucified, and they're all sitting around, Jesus and his crew, and Jesus looks at him and says, hey, by the way, y'all are all gonna abandon me. And Peter's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Not me. I mean, I love you way more than all these other dudes do. I'm like the president of the Jesus fan club. I'm, I, I'm, I'm Even if everybody leaves... It's just me and you to the end, me and you. And Jesus looks at him and says, "Hey, by the time the rooster crows in the morning, you're going to deny knowing me 3 times." Peter kind of rolls his eyes. The rest of the night happens. Jesus gets arrested, he gets tortured and beaten, there's these trials that happen, he gets he gets sentenced to an execution. All of his disciples, guess what? Scatter, abandon him, run for the hills. Peter ducks away, he's hiding, and he's trying to lay low while all of this is going on, and he's sitting around this charcoal fire, which is an important detail you're going to need to remember here in just a minute. He's sitting around this charcoal fire that night, and somebody comes up to him and asks him three different times, hey, are you that dude that was with Jesus? And three different times, Peter's like, no, I don't know who you're talking about. Leave me alone. I'm not the guy. So after he denies knowing Jesus three times, the rooster crows, and it kind of clicks Peter realizes, oh my gosh, I've done it. I'm the guy that I thought I would never would be. I've done the thing I never thought I would do. And so he's just, he weeps, he breaks down. He's a total failure. Jesus dies, he's crucified. Three days later, he's raised from the dead And over the next week or so, Jesus starts meeting back up with his disciples. In fact, in verse 14, in your handout, it tells you this this story is the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples post-resurrection. But in every visit, this situation, Peter's failure has not been discussed yet. It's kind of like the elephant in the room that everybody knows happened, but nobody's talking about. And so in John 21, Jesus decides to deal with it. And so here's the story in John 21. The disciples are out fishing, and Jesus kind of shows up on the shore, and the disciples come in with like this big haul of fish, and as Peter approaches Jesus on the shore, fixing breakfast, what does he smell? He smells a charcoal fire. Do you see that little detail in verse 9? Jesus intentionally makes a charcoal fire, not a wood fire. And so maybe that smell triggers that memory in Peter of just a couple weeks prior when he betrayed and failed Jesus. And now maybe he's expecting, oh gosh, here it comes. Jesus is about to go off on me. And so they sit down and Jesus fixes them breakfast. And after breakfast, Jesus looks at Peter and this is in verse 15. And he looks at him and he says, hey Peter, do you love me more than these? Meaning, are you really confident about the fact that you love me so much more than everybody else loves me now. Are you still confident about that? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus looks at him again a second time and says, hey, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, dude, did you not hear me? Yes, I love you. You know I love you. And then Jesus asks him a third time, hey, Peter, um, you love me? And what does it say? It says in the middle of verse 17, Peter was grieved because he asked him this question the third time. Peter grieves. He breaks down crying. Why? Because Peter knows that Jesus is recreating the scene of his biggest failure. There was that charcoal fire. Hey, here's a charcoal fire. You betrayed me at, uh, at, at, at dawn when the rooster was crowing, when the, when the sun was rising. And hey, here it is early morning. We're having breakfast, sun is rising. You got this question asked to you three times around that fire back then, and here I am asking you this question three times right here. What is Peter? What, what is Jesus wanting to have happen right in this moment? Here's what, here's what he's doing. He's saying, Peter, I don't want you to forget the memory of your biggest failure. I want you to remember it. But I want you to overlay this memory on top of it. Because you came onto this shore expecting me to shame you and scold you and lecture you and to go off on you. And what did you get instead? You got breakfast. You got me just wanting to have a meal with you. You got grace and love and acceptance. So I want you to remember that memory, but I want you to put this new experience on top of it. That's how Jesus responds to our failures. He meets our failures with grace and love and forgiveness uh a couple of um I guess no, it, was, it was earlier this year it was earlier this year Catherine and I took a my wife Catherine and I took a vacation to my favorite city in the world Chicago and we went and we saw the musical maybe you've heard of it Hamilton and um Dude, it was the greatest piece of art I've ever encountered in my whole life. It was amazing. So I'm going to, let's talk about it for a second. I think I can risk a spoiler alert. The story did happen in the 1700s. So if you don't know by now, there is a Wikipedia page about Ham- Hamilton. But if, if, you're unf- if you're one of the three people that is unfamiliar with the basic plot, Alexander Hamilton is this guy that has this quest to build a legacy, he has this insatiable ambition to make a name for himself. And his wife, Eliza, throughout the whole play, is like, dude, like, what will be enough? When's it going to be enough? Like, take a break. Like, you will never be satisfied. And Hamilton just keeps grinding. He keeps working. He just, he, he will not stop. And as the, as the, as the story unfolds, don't like that um as the story unfolds uh his son gets killed because of some bad advice that he gave him his marriage and his career basically blow up because of this illicit affair that he was having i mean he like he's a he's a he's publicly humiliated His, his career his marriage every his life is in shambles he's like he's just like a complete failure and so then the song comes on, it's quiet uptown. And the, and the Hamiltons move uptown and they try, they learn to live with the unimaginable. Just a, a suffering too terrible to name. And uh, the, the, the story goes, he, he says, here's what he says to his wife in the midst of the shambles of his own failures. He says to Eliza, I don't pretend to know the challenges we're facing. I know there's no replacing what we lost and you need time. I mean, he's wrecked his life. He has wrecked her life. She's completely devastated. And the narrator of the song kind of speaks over this particular moment, and she says this. There are moments that the the words don't reach. There's a grace too powerful to name. And on stage, Hamilton's just kind of like, his face is down, he's crying, and Eliza reaches out, and she grabs his hand. And the background singer's, Sing, forgiveness, can you imagine? Forgiveness, can you imagine? And I'm losing it. (laughs) Balling my face out. And I look around the auditorium, and it's it's not just me. Every human being is just like a wreck in this moment. Now, here's the question. Why was that moment, why did it so deeply touch us? Why was it so powerful? And I think it's because it made grace not an abstract thing. That grace was applied to a specific failure. And it was was too powerful to name. It was almost just too powerful to experience, and we all just lost it. And my point with bringing this up is this, is that it's the same way with Jesus. Jesus will, will, will mean really nothing to you until you learn to apply his grace to your failures specifically. If you're to look back over your life and to think about what are the moments in my life that I most deeply regret or, or the, the, the failures in my life that I can't undo, maybe it's from your childhood, maybe it's something that you have done to somebody else, maybe it's something that somebody has done to you, Maybe it's decisions that you made that you just wish that you could take back. Maybe it's people that you've hurt. But it's almost like Jesus is saying, I don't, I don't want you to bury those memories. Every one of us has those things that we've done or have been done to us, and we want to bury those memories and pretend that they're not a part of our story. And Jesus is saying, no, I, I want you to take those memories and to plunge them into the ocean of my grace to almost go back and to like imagine the scene of when I was doing that or when that was being done and to picture Jesus and and to overlay this new memory of Jesus's grace and love and forgiveness. He's there with me. He is showing me compassion in that moment. He's preparing a meal for me in this moment. He, He is extending grace and love and mercy and he's accepting me and he's there with me and he just wants to be with me. I mean, that's, I mean, forgive, can you imagine that kind of grace, that kind of mercy applied to the the most painful parts of your story? It's like Jesus is looking at Peter and us and saying, I know that your love for me is going to wax and wane and it's going to fluctuate. My love for you never will. You think that your biggest failures define you? They're just a part of your story. My love for you, my acceptance of you is the whole story. That's what he does with our failures. He takes them, and he applies specific grace, specific forgiveness. But that's not it. That's not all he does. That's how he responds. But, okay, what does he do with our failures? We failed Jesus. Okay, so now what? And to get into this, I want to tell you about, um, I don't don't know if y'all are This American Life people. I, I dabble in that podcast. And there was actually an interesting episode a couple of weeks ago that takes place in this, let's see if I can pronounce the city, Tianjin, China, probably saying that wrong, sorry, Tianjin, China, it's a, it's, a, it's a city of seven million people, and there's this enormous double-decker concrete bridge that runs across this huge river that goes through the city. The, the, the bridge is four miles long, uh, the, the, the bottom part is trains, and the top part is cars and tons of pedestrian traffic. And they make there's estimates that um, one person a week jumps off that bridge and ends their life one person a week and so there's this guy back in two thousand and three there's this man named Mr. Chan that started going to this bridge and patrolling it on a moped, looking for people that are about to jump so that he can save them I mean, this dude's like Batman he gives. Ten hours of his day to just driving back and forth on this bridge. He has this blog. He's he's he keeps track of all the people that he saved. He's literally saved thousands of people over the past however many years. And um, so, this American Life sends this reporter out to find Mr. Chan and basically kind of shadow him for a couple of days and see what it's like to patrol this bridge. And so this reporter goes, gets to know him. They're driving up and down this bridge. They kind of separate at one point And the, the reporter guy sees somebody climbing over the railing about to jump. And so the reporter guy doesn't know what to do. Mr. Chan's further down the bridge. So he just runs over, grabs him, and like falls back on him and saves this guy. Doesn't know what he's doing. There's this crowd that kind of forms around. Eventually, Mr. Chan kind of pulls up on his moped and the crowd kind of clears like for Batman to come through. And here's what Mr. Chan does. He says, okay, step away and stand up. So he he asks the guy to stand up that was just about to jump. He says, I want to take your picture. So he pulls out his phone and takes a picture of him, puts the phone away, and then he says this. And now I think I should punch you in the face. You call yourself Chinese How dare you? How dare you call yourself Chinese and come up on this bridge with the intention of killing yourself? You are somebody's son. How dare you? I'm going to punch you in the face. (laughs) And this reporter guy, like the This American Life, like American guy, is just like totally freaked out and confused and shocked because this is like a superhero that's going around saving people's lives and then as soon as he saves them, He, like, threatens violence and shames them for what they almost did. And I was thinking about that story and just thought, man, that is so fascinating because I think deep down, for those of you in the room that would consider yourselves Christians, my guess is deep down that's probably what you think about Jesus. That we can kind of grasp the fact that he saves you by grace, that he's just purely out of love and forgiveness. He kind of pulls you off of the bridge. But now that you're saved, he kind of gets in your face and he's like, Dude, what is wrong with you? You're still struggling with that? How dare you? You call yourself a Christian, you still do that? How dare you? But how does Jesus relate to Peter and Peter's failures? Here's Peter. He completely fails. Jesus looks at him and forgives him. And then what does Jesus say to him three different times in this little interaction? Peter, I want you to tend my sheep. I want you to feed my lambs. You know what he's saying there? I want you to do ministry. I want you to be the person that goes out and loves other people in my name. I mean, that's pretty crazy. I mean, in other words, Jesus is looking at Peter and saying, Hey, Peter, have you failed me? And Peter says, Yes, I have failed you. And Jesus says, Great, you're in charge now. How does that make any sense? The person that has failed is the person Jesus says, you'd be great for ministry. There's this other, um, or or actually, one commentary that I read this week said this. Failure is apparently the only human prerequisite for Jesus' very gracious gift of shepherding his people. Failure is the prerequisite for loving people well. I'm listening to this other podcast right now, I like podcasts, sorry. There's this other podcast I'm listening to that's focusing in on this cult that took place that started in the 1970s called Heaven's Gate. Fascinating. But I've been listening to this, to this podcast, and as they're talking about this, how this cult got started, they're always using this language of, of qualifying. So like the cult founders would, would come into a room, kind of like this, they'd gather a group of people together, and they'd say, okay, we want y'all to leave everything that you own, ditch your family, come and follow us, and we're going to teach you how to live. And if you're devoted enough, and if you follow us enough, and you keep to our teachings close enough, then you might qualify for, like, the next level of existence. And it sounds like crazy, like, bizarro stuff. But if you think about it, that's the logic of every religion in the world. Believe this stuff. Obey. Be devoted to this stuff. And if you do it wholeheartedly enough and sincere enough then maybe you might qualify for nirvana or you might qualify for heaven or you might qualify for breaking the reincarnation cycle depending on how devoted you are but it's not just religion it's every secular worldview as well it's every secular philosophy it's alexander hamilton it's work hard make a name for yourself and then you might qualify to be somebody which, by the way, is the same narrative that the university down the street's telling you, too. Make connections, work hard, make good grades, and then you might qualify for something better. You might be able to make a name for yourself if you work hard. And by the way, in this system, there is no room for error. There is no second chances. There is no forgiveness. Only if you fail, you get fired. Mess up our football program, fired. Fired. I mean, seriously, that's the logic. And yet the logic of the kingdom of God is, I mean, if you think about it, it's almost the exact opposite. You want, you want to have life with Jesus, the only prerequisite is that you fail. The only prerequisite, the, the, only, the only way that you qualify is for you to understand that you don't qualify. I think I've told you all this story before, but a couple of years ago, not at the University of Tennessee, when I was doing RUF at a different school, I feel, I feel like it was one day I had two different conversations in the same day from two different people that I was having conversations with about joining our student leadership team, like our, our RUF like, student leader ministry team. And the first guy met with me, and he wanted to kind of like, talk about why he should be a leader. And he kind of rolled out his resume. Here's why I should be a leader within RUF, because I have led three different Bible studies I read my Bible almost seven days a week. I haven't cussed in the past 18 months. And he just kind of went on and on and on. And the second guy that I met with said, Matt, I love RUF, I love Jesus, but I don't know if I'm cut out for this. I have, um, I am really struggling with my sexual sin. I am fighting and fighting, and I keep losing over and over and over. And so I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm qualified for this. And the first guy Thought he was qualified for ministry, and that's actually what disqualified him. Like I looked at him and said, Thanks, but no thanks. And the second guy who didn't think he was fit for ministry, I was begging for him to join our team. Does that sound backwards to you? That's the logic of the kingdom of God. Your failure, your recognition of your failures is, your big, is the prerequisite. It's the only prerequisite. All, all you need is to feel your need. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Imagine if the story went like this. Let's say if you rewound the tape of the Bible and Peter's sitting around that charcoal fire the night Jesus is crucified and somebody comes up to him and says, hey, are you that guy that was with Jesus? What if Peter was like, yeah, I was with Jesus. I am with Jesus. I'm one of the 12 disciples fact I'm one of the inner circle three I'm like inner core like yeah I'm with Jesus bro and then that story happens and Jesus goes on and dies and Peter goes on and lives the rest of his life in such a way where he doesn't allow himself any error or any possibility to fail and he's almost perfect in every way and he doesn't drink and he doesn't cuss and he doesn't smoke, and he, and he reads his Bible, and he prays, and he goes to church, and he's just like the perfect Christian guy, and then he goes out and tries to do ministry for Jesus, what, do you th- what, what kind of a leader do you think he would be? What do you think he would offer people? My guess is he would say it, it, the message or the manner in which he would communicate to people would be like this, y'all need help, I've got the solution, but y'all, but y'all are sinners, Y'all should be more like me. I mean, y'all need to be strong and courageous and disciplined and get victory in your life and do kind of like what I do. Y'all need to eat clean and get up and read the Bible and work out and uh, kind of be like me. He, i my guess is he would sound a lot like the, the preachers that show up, the preachers that show up on campus and say y'all are the sinners, y'all are the problem. There's no we language. But what if? you have bitterly tasted your failures and you have seen the depths of what you are capable of and you have tasted the unimaginable grace of Jesus. What do you think you would give people then? My guess is that you would give people Jesus because that's kind of all you have. And my guess is you would do it in such a way that would be humble and attractive and empathetic where really broken, sinful people would be able to identify with you. Uh, You would do it in a way that's kind and patient and uh, loving. When you taste the bitterness of your failures and then the sweetness of the grace of Jesus, that's what he does to use you for his kingdom. He doesn't just forgive you for your failures. He says, this is the prerequisite for actually loving people well in my name. Here's the last thing I want to say tonight. In um, 2008, J.K. Rowling, 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 the woman who wrote the Harry Potter books was given the commencement address at Harvard and her whole speech was, it was brilliant because her whole speech was about failure which was amazing because she's speaking to a room full of people that if you think about it, they're like on the top of the food chain in terms of like academic success and and social whatever. They're just like, "These, these are the elite of the elite. This is why they're graduating Harvard. They're not that in touch with failure. And yet she says to them, unless you understand failure, you won't understand what life is about. And she goes on and she says this. I think it is fair to say that by any conventional measure, A mere seven years after my graduation day, I had failed on an epic scale. An exceptionally short-lived marriage had imploded, and I was jobless, a lone parent, and as poor as it is possible to be in modern Britain without being homeless. The fears that my parents had had for me and that I had had for myself had both come to pass. And by every usual standard, I was the biggest failure I knew. So why do I talk about the benefits of failure? Simply because failure meant a stripping away of the inessential. And she goes on to say that she learned this, that personal happiness lies in knowing that life is not a checklist of acquisition or achievement. And that is so true, isn't it? personal happiness, life. You want to understand what life is about? Life is not about working through your to-do list, reaching all your goals, conquering the world. And she's right, but I think she's only half right. Because if that's what life is not about, then what is life about then? Life is about resting in Jesus who welcomes your failures and actually doesn't require any to-do list because he's done everything that needed to be done for you in the first place. Life is about resting in him and knowing the game is over. I can get off the hamster wheel. I don't have to keep performing and try to make a name for myself and there's a million things I haven't done, but just you wait. Like that, I'm, I can stop because I can finally rest in his love for me. Here's the very last thing I'll say. Did you notice at the very end of this story, at the very end of this conversation, Jesus looks at Peter, and what does he say to him? He says, hey, follow me. That's bizarre. That's the same exact thing that Jesus told Peter three years ago when they first met. When Jesus first meets Peter, he says to him, follow me. Here they are. Three years later, follow me. Why? Because nothing has changed. Peter Three years ago, you needed me and I invited you to come follow me. Well, guess what? You went up, you went down, you failed. I'm still inviting you to follow me because you still need me. And the invitation really is, is true for us as well tonight. You may have been in these settings before and you've heard these kind of talks a million times. The invitation is still for you. Come and bring your failures and your regrets to Jesus and receive his love and his acceptance and how he uses them. Or maybe this is the first time for you tonight where you're like, I don't know what to do with my guilt and my shame and my failures. The invitation is for you too to come and follow Jesus. Bring your failures to him. Because the good news of the gospel, the promise of the gospel is this He will forgive your failures, and He will use your failures. That's good news. Let me pray. Father, I do pray that you give us the courage and the faith to bring our deepest regrets and failures to you. Ways that we have betrayed you. We've done things that we knew were wrong, but we did them anyway. And Father, thank you that you don't meet us with folded arms and a disappointing, disappointed look. But you meet us with a meal. You meet us with kindness. You meet us with forgiveness. I pray that you'd help us to imagine what that might look like and and what it might even taste like, what it might feel like to be loved and accepted like that. Help us to bring our deepest failures to you and experience you in a new way. We pray all this in Jesus' name.
0: Amen.